Hi, how are you doing? I'm standing at the edge of an area of salt marsh and mud flats. And Scout is pretty much belly deep in the water. And you can hear the sound of some ripples breaking against a little speedboat that's anchored and is gently drifting. Scout, come. Come here. Don't completely ignoring me. I've come to um, one of the most remote and atmospheric landscapes that East Anglia does so well. It's the reason this whole area was um, just inaccessible for so long and, and part of the reason why it's remained quite unspoiled. The Orwell Crossing was only opened in 1982 and I've got an AA walks book from 1975 that includes no walks from East Anglia at all. Scout, come. Come here. Come here. Come on. Good girl. Sit. Sit. Good girl. She's really wet. <laughs> My name's Melissa Harrison, and I'm a novelist and nature writer from rural Suffolk. <laughs> Through summer and into autumn, I'm going to help you keep in touch with the natural world, shush, and the changing seasons. Welcome to episode 16 the stubborn light of things. to walk today around the edge of the water to a promontory where there's a tiny thatched church and there's been a church there for over 1,300 years which is extraordinary when you think about it. When this area was first settled it would have been an incredibly strange and unforgiving landscape. Just mudflats, creeks, the estuary, saltwater marshes, and fish. The path here is passing between stands of tall Phragmites reed. And what you can hear is the breeze moving through it. On the other side of the reeds, to my left, is the water and a distant promontory with the church on it. To my right is farmland. First there's a paddock with some horses in it. And beyond that, rich, arable farmland. Some of which, slightly incongruously, is growing turf. So there's this really wild really kind of ancient primeval feeling landscape here these salt marshes and creeks and mudflats and then the manicured bowling green acres and acres of turf in Gilbert White's 
diary entries for today. You'll hear him describing some razor bill eggs that he's been sent from the Isle of Wight. The razor bill is um, the closest living relative we have now to the extinct great orc. He mentions the shape of their eggs. I grew up believing that birds' eggs were pointier at one end to help stop them rolling out of the nest, and particularly cliff-dwelling birds, uh, like razorbills, would have a, a very pointy egg. But recent research has shown that not to be true, that actually the strongest correlation between the shape of a bird's eggs and the species is whether or not it's a strong flyer. The causation between those two facts hasn't been established, but one theory is that it's just the best shape to accommodate a bird that needs to end up being very long and pointy. July the 20th, 1768. Vast aurora borealis. The white owl has young. It brings a mouse to its nest every five minutes beginning at sunset. Hey, intolerable order. Cut my little meadow. July the 20th, 1778. Much thunder. Some people in the village were struck down by the storm, but not hurt. The stroke seemed to them like a violent push or shove. The ground is well soaked. Frogs migrate from the ponds. July the 20th, 1784. My brother Henry and his son Sam came. Saw an old swift feed its young in the air, a circumstance which I could never discover before. July the 20th, 1789. Began to cut my hay, a vast burden, but overripe. July the 20th, 1792. Simeon Etty brought me two eggs of a razor bill from the cliffs of the Isle of Wight. They are large and long, very blunt at the big end, very sharp and peaked at the small. One of these eggs is of a pale green, the other more white. Both are marked and dotted irregularly with chocolate-coloured spots. Razor bills lay but one egg, except if the first is taken away, and then a second, and on to a third. By their weight, these eggs seem to have been sat on, and to contain young ones. Well, Scout and I have reached the tiny church on the promontory. And it's extraordinary because you can see it from quite some distance. And it occupies this incredible remote location surrounded by salt marsh and mudflats. But when you're inside the churchyard, it's... Um, hedged and fenced and you can't really see the view around it it feels like almost any village churchyard we've been sitting here and listening to the lack of birds a month ago all of the hedges around us would have been alive with birdsong but the breeding season is over and songbirds no longer use their voices to defend a territory, so they're saving their energy. They're also going into molt, and they'll change their feathers for a new set, and that makes them vulnerable, so they tend to keep themselves unseen and unheard for a little while. And with the exception of robins, which sing all year round, and wrens, there won't be a lot of bird song. There'll be calls, but not a lot of bird song now. <laughs> 
until February, March. And that feels sad, but it's also just part of how the year works. It's what makes one season different to another, and there's great pleasure in that. And God, the joy when they start up again. My guest this week is Richard Carter, who runs the Friends of Darwin Twitter account. His first book was On the Moor, and he's working on his second at the moment, which looks at the world through Darwin's eyes. And he's coming to us from Hebden Bridge. It's about an hour and a half after sunset, and I'm standing in my garden looking across the Hebden Valley towards Hebdenstall Church, and I'm out waiting for bats. There's one. It's uh, just flown across the front of the uh, crescent moon and it's disappeared again. Oh, there it is. Wow, about a metre in front of me then. And there's another one heading off into the gloaming. I like bats. I've been reading up about them recently for a chapter I'm writing for my next book. And I was quite surprised to learn that we only found out about their echolocation ability in the 1930s. Detecting something as small as a moth using echolocation creates quite a problem for the bats because they have to click very loudly in order to get any sort of echo back. And they also have to have very sensitive ears to pick up the echo. And the problem is if you click loudly next to sensitive ears, uh, you're going to deafen yourself. So natural selections come up with a typically weird solution. And just before each click, the bats effectively turn off their ears. They uh, disable the little bones that we, we mammals use to hear. And then they turn them back on again immediately after the click, just in time to hear the echo coming back. Talking of deafening yourself, I was hoping to bring you some live recordings tonight of bats echolocating using my bat detector. But unfortunately, I was trying a dry run the other night and I somehow blew the thing up. I did, however, get a few recordings and I was hoping to slip one in here and we could just maybe pretend it was live. I'm sure David Atterbury does that sort of thing all the time. Anyway, um, here's my recording. As far as I can tell, the bats around here are pipistrelle bats, which are the most common bats in Britain. Although, about 20 years ago, it was discovered that there were actually two types of pipistrelles in the country, and I think they've since discovered a third. But this was thanks to people with bat detectors who um, had somehow managed to avoid blowing their bat detectors up, and they worked out that whereas the majority of the pipistrelles echolocated at one frequency, there was another group that echolocated at a slightly higher frequency and because they sang at a higher pitch so to speak they uh, called them soprano pipistrelles i'm not sure what tony soprano would make of that but what are you going to do i think it's absolutely wonderful that um you know people have been watching bats in britain since you know the stone age and it was only 20 years ago that we discovered that there was a species of bat that we hadn't noticed before it just makes you wonder what else is out there taking a little bit of a break. I'm sitting on the hull of an upturned boat.
Grass Scout is eating grass. Scout, stop eating grass. Stop eating, and that bit. Good girl. And a little bit of a breeze has got up, which I'm hoping isn't going to interfere too much with the recording. There's two things I loved about Richard's piece there. And one is the equipment failure. Because that kind of thing happens. And I didn't tell you before, but I lost an entire episode of this podcast. It was the Nightingale's one. Water had got into the recorder and I had walked to the site in the dark, spent an evening recording, got some amazing stuff, walked all the way back and it was all ruined. I had to go back the next night. The second thing I loved was his description of the two kinds of pipistrelle bats that are so close that the only way to tell them apart is by the frequency of their call. So what we're seeing there is something called speciation, which is when one species splits off from another. And we don't always allow for it in animals, the fact that they're all evolving at any given time. They're not fixed. And we don't allow for it in other people too. We don't allow for our identities to change. In relationships, we often hold people um, quite still. We say things like, you're not the kind of person that does that, or but you don't like foreign food, or since when have you ever done yoga? And it comes from fear, I think. Certainly something I've been guilty of. But there's a joy in holding our identities lightly when it comes to ourselves as well as other people, having some curiosity about the ways in which we might change. When I was a kid, I had a very poor sense of self. I didn't have a happy time at home and I didn't have a happy time at school. And the defence mechanism I learned, which served me well then, but I had to learn to leave behind, was to read other people very closely and change who I seemed to be in order to fit in. And that made it really hard to have a stable sense of who I was or what I needed. And it led me to make some really bad decisions. And it took quite a lot of work and quite a lot of help to change that and discover a stable, inward sense of self that I could always call on and that would always tell me what I needed and what was a bad idea and that process came about partly during the process of becoming a writer and I think learning to do creative work of any kind is a process of self-discovery I remember um, a poem by Gerard Manley Hopkins that became very important to me during that time when I was learning who I was in the world. Um, and it's as Kingfisher's Catch Fire, and it, it contains the lines, each mortal thing does one thing and the same, deals out that being, indoors each one dwells. Selves goes itself. Myself it speaks and spells, crying, what I do is me, for that I came.
I'm really glad I did that work before the advent of social media because for all its joys and for all of the wonderful friends that I've met, it is a hall of mirrors. If you don't have a really strong sense of yourself, you can get knocked over or the wrong bits amplified, pulled in difficult directions that it's hard to turn back from. And social media has also prompted a wider shift when it comes to identity, I think. It's done this brilliant thing of allowing many more voices into the room. And it's allowed people to find their tribe. And that process of individuation is is fantastic and joyful and exciting and long overdue. But it's also unsettling. And one of the ways in which it's unsettling is that it makes collective action more difficult. It makes the process of saying we more difficult. I've been writing a nature notebook column in the Times for some years. And as you know, The columns will be collected together and published by Faber in November. This time last year, as you'll hear, I was also thinking about bats, just like Richard. The Times Nature Notebook, July 2019. My doorstep is covered in animal faeces, and I couldn't be happier about it. For ten days or so now, I've opened the front door to find the mat liberally sprinkled with tiny black droppings, with more scattered in a close semicircle around. Having spotted one caught in a spider's web and another on the wood of the door itself, I realised they must have been falling from somewhere. It turns out I have a bat roost, or perhaps even a maternity colony, in a crevice over my front door. I knew there were lots of bats in the village. I'd sat in my back garden a few nights before with a friend and a bottle of red, and watch them swooping and flickering not far over our heads. All bats, as well as their breeding sites, are protected, and a healthy population is proof of decent insect numbers and good botanical diversity. My bats are most likely to be pipistrelles, a tiny rufous bat small enough to fit in a matchbox that does a great job of keeping things like mosquitoes down. One pipistrelle can eat up to 3,000 insects per night. Bat numbers have fallen fast over the last hundred years, in part due to the ongoing crash in invertebrate abundance, but also because modern buildings rarely provide anywhere for them to live, while insecticides and timber treatments often used on older buildings are also highly toxic to them. Putting up bat boxes can help. Go to www.bats.org.uk for advice. There are young birds everywhere right now still just about distinguishable from the adults by their juvenile plumage and, with the exception of those aerial natives, the swifts, swallows and house martins, their terrible flying skills. Young male blackbirds are slowly turning blacker. Speckled baby robins, still awaiting their orange breast feathers, perch wobblily on my flower pots, while juvenile blue tits, the colour of stonewashed denim, were awkwardly around in my apple tree. 
Soon they'll grow a proper set of adult feathers and master their wing muscles. For now, I'm enjoying having the clumsy kids around. I found the most amazing spot to sit amongst the reeds. There used to be a path that ran from here all along the course of the estuary through the reed beds, but it's been washed away. This is a really shifting landscape. And I came along here a few months ago, got quite far out and then almost got stuck in the mud. So I know not to go too far along it. But I thought it would be a lovely place to sit because from here, you can't really see much of civilization. I can see a distant um, pylon, but that's about it. What I can see around me are the reeds that you can hear rustling in the wind. There are dead oaks poking up here and there from the salt marsh, just white and weathered. And trees and water. I've got the dog on a lead because I don't want her to take off into the mud. I always tell her I'm not going in after you. Of course, I would go in after her. I'd be one of these people that drowns rescuing their dog, and the dog is fine. I passed a lot of people that were trying to find somewhere to swim, and I told them all not to come this way, knowing that it's not safe. But then I went this way myself, and they all gave me a funny look. You'll be pleased to hear, by the way, that um, that bat roost over the door of my previous cottage is still there. I went back a little while ago. I went back to retrieve my big saucepan, but then I had to go back again to retrieve the lid. And when I went back to retrieve the lid, I saw the droppings still on the mat. The Ideal by James Fenton This is where I came from. I passed this way. This should not be shameful or hard to say. A self is a self. It is not a screen. A person should respect what he has been. This is my past, which I shall not discard. This is the ideal. This is hard. The poem this week was read by Peter Rogers, who produces this podcast and writes all the music. And lots of you have been getting in touch to ask where you can get hold of the music. And I'm very excited to tell you that as of August, you'll be able to buy it on Bandcamp. And it'll also be available on Spotify and iTunes if you search for The Stubborn Light of Things. We are back at the car, and I now need to load up an incredibly muddy dog into the front footwell. I think when we get home, sadly, she's going to have to go under the garden hose. Thanks for listening. See you next week.